Ave Podcast listeners, a quick notice before we start the podcast today. We have a new mini-series that is now funding on Kickstarter. It's available to backers only. It'll cost you about $10 US, and you'll get four episodes of a mini-series looking at the Illyrian Wars, which are a series of skirmishes between Rome and the tribes of Illyria across the Adriatic Sea. It features myself along with Dr. Christopher Gribben, and is funding until the 28th of November. You can find it by searching on Kickstarter. Illyrian is spelled I-L-L-Y-R-I-A-N. And we've also put links on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks to everyone who backs the project. And now on with the podcast. Ave, and welcome to Emperors of Rome, a Roman history podcast from La Trobe University. I'm your host, Matt Smith, and with me today is Associate Professor Rhiannon Evans, Senior Lecturer in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University. This is episode CXXX, Unpopular Reforms. Tiberius Gracchus had introduced land reforms to Republican Rome, which basically took the land away from the rich and redistributed it to the normal people. This reform was unpopular with the ruling class, but it was a hit amongst the normal people of Rome. Now you can please some of the people all of the time, and all of the people some of the time, but that's just politics, isn't it? It's hardly something to lose your head over. Here's Rhiannon Evans. Now Tiberius is going to run into trouble because there are those who want this law vetoed. And so they persuade one of the fellow tribunes, who's called Marcus Octavius. No relation. To do that. Sorry, I just feel I should have put that in. I didn't mean to derail you. (laughs) (laughs) He's not coming till later, that one. That's why I said no relation. (laughs) There are 10 tribunes. Any one of them can veto this. But those who are opposed to the law, the landholders, grab hold of Marcus Octavius and they say he's going to be the one who will veto it. So Tiberius Gracchus then has to try and persuade Marcus Octavius. Now, Marcus Octavius was a friend of Tiberius's. That's how Plutarch kind of puts it. So I get the impression he's just the one who's pushed forward by the more influential people who don't want their names attached to what's going on. Yeah, and Plutarch describes him, actually says, an intimate companion of Tiberius. Mm. I think he's trying to show how balanced this should have been, but they both get pushed by forces of Roman society. He says that Marcus Octavius is one of the tribunes who's a man of sober character, discreet, and a friend of Tiberius. Mm. So Octavius is said to at first not get involved. He's forced by influential men, as Plutarch puts it, to oppose Tiberius. Then Plutarch explains, for his Greek audience who might not know, that tribunes can veto anything. In fact, it has the opposite effect to what the men of influence would want, because Tiberius is incensed by this, and he withdraws that law and says, well, have this one instead then, one where I'm I'm not going to compromise as much, one Mm. that will be more a measure that gives more power to the people, so which gave them more, and more severe against the wrongdoers, as he calls them, since it simply ordered them to vacate without compensation the land which they had acquired in violation of earlier laws. Right, so before it was the state will buy the excess back off you and now it's just fine, you will lose it. Mm. For all Tiberius has been described as as measured and composed, you try to push against him and he'll say, right, I'm going to take you on, is Mm. the impression I get. And you'll regret it because he's now going to go more extreme, more severe. So at this point there is debate And there's a lot of back and forth about this law between the two parties. Yeah, and 
Um, and early on, and it shows how unusual this is for Roman Republican politicians, that Plutarch actually states, neither abused the other or let fall a single word about the other, which anger made unseemly. So they're not abusing each other, mm-hmm. which Romans regularly did in the Republican period. Tiberius observed that Octavius himself was amenable to the law as a larger holder of the public land. And then he begged him to remit his opposition, promising to pay him the value of his land, basically out of his own pocket. Even though, as Plutarch says, Tiberius doesn't have that much money. He must have quite a lot of money to be in the Roman Senate. But for someone in the Senate, he doesn't have vast amounts of money. But he says to Octavius, look, I'll give you the value of your land myself then. Mm. And even then, Octavius says no. Well, that's only solving the problem for one of the Roman elite. Yeah, but I guess that's the one he needs to win over at this point because of the veto. Yeah, but I mean, Octavius has got to be looking over his shoulder at that point at all the row of senators who are standing behind them who stand to lose lots of land. So, yeah, yeah, I can see why that didn't go ahead. And then Tiberius says, okay, I'm bringing in an edict that there's going to be no public business carried out. Mm. And I'm locking up the treasury. Yes. He puts his private seal upon the temple of Saturn. So the magistrates in charge of the finances, the quaestors, can't take any money out. I mean, it is very like a federal shutdown, isn't it? it? it just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, it just becomes very petty. So every day there's daily ceremony rites in which the tribunes were asked if they would allow for key public buildings to be open for the day. So mm. just for general business. And Tiberius has a government shutdown. He yeah. goes, right, you are not doing that ceremonial yeah. right for the day, so therefore you can't open the building. <laughs> Massively petty. And my favourite bit of all of it, the men of property, as Plutarch calls them, put on the garb of mourning <laughs> and went about the forum in pitiful low guise. But in secret, they plotted against the life of Tiberius. Yeah, well, this is the kind of escalation that you don't get today in yes. politics at the moment. <laughs> yes, Both of them are kind of extreme. I know going around in mourning isn't going to kill anybody. It is very melodramatic behavior Mm. um, because they're acting as if the Republic is dead or something. And there are certain times that you do this. Obviously, you do it when you're mourning the death of someone in your family. You might do it if you were a criminal who was about to be put on trial or somebody who'd been accused of a criminal act. Mm. And it's a very public way of showing that you're in a state of distress. Mm. Appian sums up what's going on on both sides. I think he's a little more balanced in a way than Plutarch. Mm. I mean, I'm on the side of giving this land away, but personally. (laughs) But Appian tries to present the other side, the fears that the landowners might have. They say things like they've paid the price of their land to the neighbours. They bought that land. Are they going to lose that money? So I guess this is the argument for compensation that comes up. Mm. Others said that the graves of their ancestors were in the ground, which had been allotted to them in the division of their father's estates. Others still said that their wives' dowries had been expended on the estates or land had been given up to their own daughters as dowry. And so they've got these ties to the land, I suppose, and that's part of their argument. And I think particularly their ancestors being buried on the land, an argument that we can feel some sympathy with. Yes. However, he also gives the other side, which is quite persuasive too, on the other side of the lamentations of the poor, that they were being reduced from competence to extreme penury from that to childlessness because they were unable to rear their offspring. They recounted their military service by which the very land had been acquired and they were angry that they should be robbed of their share of the common property. They reproached the rich for employing slaves who were always faithless and ill-disposed, free poor against the slaves argument, Mm. and for that reason unserviceable in war instead of free men, citizens and soldiers. 
So he sort of gives us an interesting look at what might have been argued on both sides and what might have been going on through all of these debates of Tiberius and Octavius, for example. So now it comes to the day of the vote. It doesn't seem very gentlemanly. Oh, gosh, no. Now I think we've gone way, way beyond, way beyond gentlemanly. gentlemanly. <laughs> and Plutarch talks about the party of the rich. They steal the voting urns. <laughs> so this is like you, you put a rock of a certain colour into a certain urn. But, you know, if there's no urns, there's no vote. Yeah. Tiberius's allies managed to force the issue and Plutarch's a bit vague on what happens here, but presumably they get them to put the voting urns back. Mm. We get a real sense throughout this that Tiberius really tries to accommodate his enemies. He refers matters to the Senate, but they are dominated by the landowners, so they won't help any negotiations. And he keeps saying to Octavius... All right, are you sure you want to veto? Because this is going to happen. Mm. And in the end, he's sort of begging and crying. He gives Octavius one last chance not to do it because Tiberius has been driven to the point where he's going to deprive Octavius of his tribunate. This is often represented in kind of shorthand as he threw him out of office. Actually, it is legal for him to put this before the people it's a vote of no confidence. Yeah, basically it yeah. is. Because Octavius is a tribune of the people. Mm. And if he says to the people in their court, in their conchilium, do you want to vote him out of office, basically? And they say, yeah, and they vote by tribe. It's very complicated. Mm. If enough of them vote for it, then he loses his office. Yes. And this has never happened. It's unprecedented. So it makes the Romans very uncomfortable because they want precedent. But it is not illegal. So Tiberius feels he's been driven to this and he keeps giving Octavius the chance to reconsider before he drives him out of office. Mm, but it, um, it gets to the deciding vote. So I guess everyone's standing up casting their vote in person. They're casting their vote for their tribe. Yes, yes, right? yes. So half of them have done it and the next one that goes along. The next one stands up. Tiberius goes, wait a minute, sure? wait a minute, Octa <laughs> Octavius. Man, we've got the last voter here. This guy will tip the balance. Are you sure you want him to vote? And there's crying. Yeah. So Octavius is said to be not altogether untouched. His eyes filled with tears. He stood silent for a long time. Octavius is described as somebody who principled as well. He's just told to make this stand and he continues to make it. When he turned his gaze towards the men of wealth and substance who were standing in a body together, his awe of them, as it would seem, and his fear of ill repute among them led him to take every risk with boldness and he bid Tiberius do what he pleased. So... He gets voted out of office. That's really telling that he's the votes there going on and he so much fears the wealthy men that he just goes, let the vote go. Mm. His position's worth less than the ire of the senators. This is the whole problem of the late republic in microcosm in a way. Do you let the Senate have their authority? Because the Senate as a body has no absolute power. It gives advice. It's mm. an advisory body. Within that, there are magistrates and they have a lot of power individually. But are you going to let the Senate have authority or are you going to give that power back to the people? Well, Tiberius gives it back to the people at that point. So Octavius loses his tribuneship and the mob tries to tear him apart. Yeah, it's, it's, it's getting violent <laughs> yeah. now at this point. And somebody who's trying to protect him, one of his servants, has his eyes clawed out. That's really nasty. Tiberius intervenes and, and saves Octavius. So mm. I guess he owes him that much at least. 
Yeah, I mean, you can see that Tiberius is being presented as somebody who really tries to allow this to happen in small steps, but he's trying to prevent at least physical violence from breaking out. Mm. He's absolutely going to fail. So the law passes. It's enacted and put in force. Three men are chosen for the survey and distribution of public lands. I kind of have a problem with these three men, but anyway, Tiberius, okay, his father-in-law, right, and his brother Gaius. Nice, impartial people to execute such a law. Yeah, in addition to that, of course, we now have a vacant tribunate and Tiberius gets somebody who's a client of his. Yeah. So, in other words, somebody who he has been the patron of to fulfill that role. Mm. So, in other words, he's going to be a tame tribune. Yes. <clears throat> this yeah. is another sign of what's going to happen during the fall of the Republic, that you can have power if you've got the tribunes in your pocket, or at least one of them. And Tiberius now is being described, at least by Appian, as an absolute cult figure. Yeah, okay. Appian 113. 113, yeah. He, he says, Gracchus became immensely popular by reason of the law and was escorted home by the multitude as though he were the founder, not of a single city or race, but all the nations of Italy. Mm. So it's like he is their great political hero now and they're sort of holding him aloft. And this is a problem as well, of course, because the whole point of the Republic is that there is a certain leveling off at the top. Yeah. And now he's being elevated above that. And the people who lost the vote get a bit petty at this point and just make things as difficult within the rules for Tiberius as they can. Yeah. It's like when you, somebody wants to get rid of someone in their workplace and they just start not giving them supplies. It's exactly <laughs> what they're doing. They don't allow him to have a tent in which he can carry out the kind of public business of doling out to the people money or supplies that they need. So he can't carry out the business as tribune or the business indeed uh, for the distribution of the public land. They restrict his spending. They try to not let this happen. Mm. The law's passed, so they're indignant about it. But it comes to the point where Tiberius is now is in fear of his life, isn't he? Yeah, he knows that there are people who are out to get him now. And that's been going on for a while, according to Plutarch. So indeed, when one of Tiberius's friends dies and there's a suspicion that it's poison, there's this whole rumour mill. Anybody around him who dies, it must have been something invidious. It must have been somebody hostile to Tiberius. So in chapter 13, Plutarch says... He brought his children before the assembly and begged the people to care for them and their mother, saying that he despaired of his own life. And at this point, Tiberius dresses in mourning and starts to play the crowd. All right, so what the rich were doing before when the law was about to go through, mm. expressing how they felt about this law, Tiberius is now doing, although it's more personal at this point, he does feel personally in danger. But again, it's a very public way of courting support. All right, so the land distribution laws are in full swing at the moment. They've been implemented. All is well and good and everyone is happy. Well. <laughs> yeah, well. <laughs> but then to mix it up a bit, King Attalus dies, essentially throws a hand grenade on the Senate with what he does with his will. Yeah, I mean, it's meant to actually protect his people, presumably. So Attalus III of Pergamum dies in 133. Where's Pergamum? Pergamum is modern Turkey, so okay. it's another name for Troy, in fact, so that area. Yeah. This is an old Hellenistic kingdom, a kingdom that's part of the fallout of Alexander the Great's empire, mm. so it stretches back to that. And like a lot of the Mediterranean world has become increasingly enthralled to Rome, 
So because the theory is it's clear to Attalus that Rome is just going to step in and take over, mm. he decides to kind of circumvent this by giving his kingdom to Rome. Yeah. So that at least it can happen peacefully. Okay, okay. So suddenly you've got an influx of land and money. Let's just reduce it to that, really. Well, yeah, it's a huge amount of wealth. It's a very wealthy yeah. kingdom. I yeah. mean, this is what makes it attractive to Rome. And normally before land laws, the Senate would have gone, thank you very much. Our pockets are quite big. <laughs> but now there is somebody who has changed the laws. Yeah, and this is a good opportunity for Tiberius Gracchus, and we can presume that the Senate was partly saying, well, you know, we don't have the resources because they don't want to lose any of their land, mm. that he can say, well, we have this money, we have this new resource to use. This doesn't play to the way they want the narrative to go. Um, and he also wants land that is gained from this kingdom and this land to be distributed. So that's blocks the senators from acquiring that land. So yeah. it's a kind of double deal. Yeah, so just to fit, you know, literally we have this new land, let's put settle some veterans on it or something like that. Yeah, that's, yeah. You know, settle some landless Romans that need it, exactly. Sure. Okay, so the Senate is not happy with that, but <laughs> the law is in place and I suppose they've got to go along with that. But at the same time, doesn't it give Tiberius Gracchus a lot of power an enormous amount of power and influence. Yeah. Because, of course, if this goes ahead, not only is there what is in the initial bill, which the Senate didn't like anyway, or the initial law, but also a vast amount more land that he now has at his disposal. So this means that there's a lot more people who will be beholden to him. So this is absolutely playing into the beginnings of those fears, not just of losing their land, but of having somebody who's already got authority acquiring a lot more power through popularity with the people. We sort of think of this time in broad brushstroke terms as the senatorial class having the most power in voting. But the people do have some power. In, they get to vote on laws. They get to vote on magistracies. Mm. So having a vast majority of the ordinary free people beholden to you or grateful to you means you've got a lot of power and they really fear that. Mm -hmm. And even, you know, down the track, you could have a popular uprising on your hand. Yeah. I think some of the writing on this is very much affected by what does happen. So we have to be a bit careful about how we read sources like Plutarch. Plutarch knows that mm. eventually all power will devolve to one man mm. and there will be an emperor. And he knows that in the first century, everything's going to fall apart because of those fears of tyranny of a dictator. But it does seem to be happening even at this point that they worry that Tiberius is accumulating too much power. There's a story that arises that Eudemus of Pergamum, so the heir or the natural heir, because Rome is now the heir, has presented Tiberius Gracchus with a royal crown, with a diadem mm. and a purple robe, the clothing of kings. Okay. This is certainly a fear that the Roman Senate in particular have. You know, they've thrown out their kings centuries before. So there's a lot of paranoia here on the part of the Senate, but it's, you know, perhaps founded. So how does Tiberius react he knows that he needs to continue what he's doing. And to do that, he needs to be in a position of power. He needs to hold a magistracy. What he wants to do is to be tribune of the plebs for another year. Right. But that's not constitutional. Yeah, I was about to say it's one and you're done kind of thing. <laughs> yes, exactly. Almost all magistracies are one year and you're yeah. meant to have gaps between them if you have any repeats. So Tiberius is kind of going to the masses and saying, I've offered you this, make me tribune again. Which is exactly what the Senate feared. Yes. And so well done proving them right. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, exactly. And he kind of makes promises to them that he will act on their behalf, make sure that there are laws that protect them. Mm. I mean, things that are in some ways quite reasonable. So the things he's promising the people, and this is directly from his biography, Plutarch chapter 16, what he's promising included a reduction of the period of military service. Mm -hmm. So, you know, technically all Roman men are obliged to perform some military service at this point, but not for as long. So that appeals. They have the right of appeal from the verdicts of the juries. Okay. So previously what the jury says is final. And he's going to admit to the juries, which had hitherto been composed exclusively of senators, an equal number of knights. So those of a the slightly equestrian. lower order. Yeah. order. yeah, the equestrians. So there's a bit more balance in Ooh, the jury. Yeah. In short, he says Tiberius' program was designed to cripple the power of the Senate in every possible way. I'm still stuck on the Tribune for the plebs for the second year. So they were okay yeah. with that vote going ahead. Oh, no. Well, you mean the people were or the Senate? Well, the people are probably fine with it. Yeah. It's one of those things, isn't it? You have to decide, does the means justify the end? The Republican Constitution starting to break down. But the Republican Constitution is not offering much to the vast majority of free people yeah. who have been deprived of land. So it's not working. Something has to happen. And the thing that has to happen in Tiberius's view is to keep him in power. So at what point did the Senate decide enough's enough Killing good old TG is a viable solution. So we get now to the point of voting in the tribunal elections for the following year. Mm. And the people are sort of being blocked from voting and Tiberius' friends point this out to him. So he goes and makes a direct appeal to the people. Plutarch says he went down into the forum and pleaded with the citizens in humble tone with tears in his eyes. He went to tell them that he was afraid that his enemies would break into his house at night and kill him. Mm. And in this way, he touched the emotions of his audience so powerfully that many of them encamped outside his house and spent the night there on guard. So he's very persuasive in his way of speaking. Remember, we said last time that Plutarch describes him as a very good speaker, but compared to his brother, not particularly flowery or melodramatic. Mm. This looks like about as melodramatic as he gets. <laughs> yeah. So this is quite an extreme situation. I think we can suppose, if we're going to believe Plutarch, that he actually believes this because this is not his normal way of, of approaching the matter. And, of course, the fact that the people are now camping outside his home, I mean, the Senate sort of brought this on themselves, but that looks like his support base acting kind of as vigilantes. So that's enough for the Senate, really? Yeah, and, and the next thing Plutarch tells us is that there are omens of Tiberius' death. Yeah, I mean, well, as soon as there's omens of your death, it's just, you know, show's over. So we've got, at the break of day, there came to the house the man who bought the birds with which auspices are taken and threw food before them, but the birds would not come out of the cage, with the exception of one, though the keeper shook the cage right hard. <laughs> And even the one that came out would not touch the food, but raises its left wing, left, first yeah. mention of left. Always always bad luck. Oh, very sinister. Stretched out its leg and then ran back into the cage. There you go. The next omen, all that I've got is stubs his toe. <laughs> it's quite a dramatic toe stub. Yeah. Well, stubbing your toe is always bad. It happens in the Aeneid as well on the, in the story of the fall of Troy. So Tiberius looks to go out. He heard the people were assembled on the Capitol, so he sets out. But as he was leaving the house, he stumbled against the threshold. He struck his foot so violently that the nail of his big toe was split. Oh, yeah, it was painful yeah. even reading it. Yep. And the blood ran out through his sandal. Ah, can't you feel that? 
That's a bad omen. It's going to get worse for him, let's face it. So he's limping up to the capital now. Mm. Next omen. Yeah, ra- more, more birds, yes, I was going to say. More birds. Ravens fighting on a roof to his left. To his left, of course. To his left. And they knock a stone at his feet despite the fact that there are other people around. And I'm assuming this is, you know... A roof tile. Whoa, that was close. That was a bad omen. Keeps going anyway. Yeah, it keeps going up to the capital. And his his friends now are telling him this is not really a good idea. They're hesitating. And Blossius of Kumai, great name, mm. declared that it would be a shame and an unbearable disgrace if Tiberius, a son of Gracchus, a grandson of Scipio Africanus, and a champion of the Roman people, should fail to answer his fellow citizens' call for help. Mm. It's his fault. Exactly. <laughs> um, and he's doing exactly the right thing, though, getting Tiberius to go, if that's what he wants, because you appeal to the ancestors. This it's- is your father. This is your grandfather. Are you going to let them down? It's it's a bit late now. Ignore the birds. Clean your toe up. Get up onto the capital. <laughs> and he says, you know, are you just afa- afraid of a raven? Mm-hmm. He's kind of mocking him. Yes. <laughs> Scared of a raven. Quote the raven, nevermore. <laughs> okay, so Tiberius gets to the capital and another friend, Fulvius Flaccus, says to him, look, the Senate is planning to murder you. Yes. The reaction to this is not to flee but to pass around weapons. So we're already looking at conflict here, aren't we? Mm. Tiberius Gracchus touches his head. For him, this means that his life is under threat. Yes. He's in danger. But this is typical of the way whatever you say, your enemies might read it the way they want. They think he's asking for a crown to be put on his head. Right. So they see this and, mm. boy, look, he wants a crown. <laughs> exactly like that is how they said it. <laughs> But look, there's a bit of resistance here, even from the senatorial side. The consul refuses to move against Gracchus. Mm. However, archenemy Nasica springs up and says, well, the chief magistrate is betraying the state. People who want to protect the laws, come with me. Mm-hmm. Puts his toga over his head, which is kind of a mark of a patriarch or a priest, and he sets out for the capital. All the senators who followed him wrapped their togas about their left arms. Oh, left. <laughs> this is partly to protect them, though. Okay, sorry, I'm just reading too much into that. <laughs> and pushed aside those who stood in their path. So this is getting quite aggressive. So now we get the death scene of Tiberius Gracchus, which is, is very dramatic and involves furniture and bludgeoning. So the best way to wade into that is probably read from Plutarch mm. and, then, and then wade into the details. All right, so the senators are marching up the Capitol and Plutarch says they were armed with clubs and staves, which they had brought from their homes. They'd smashed up the legs and fragments of the benches which the crowd had broken in their hurry to escape and made straight for Tiberius. So they've got all these weapons from home and also ad hoc bits of furniture. They made straight for Tiberius, lashing out at those who were drawn up in front of him. His protectors were quickly scattered or clubbed down, and as Tiberius turned to run, someone caught hold of his clothing. He threw off his toga and fled in his tunic, but then stumbled over some of the prostrate bodies in front of him. As he struggled to his feet, one of his fellow tribunes, Publius Satreus, as everyone agrees, dealt the first blow, striking him on the head with the leg of a bench. Mm. Lucius Rufus claimed to have given him the second and prided himself upon this as if it were some noble exploit. More than 300 men were killed by blows from sticks and stones, but none by the sword. Wow. 300. Well, I gather there's people going down on both sides, but that's, that's a massacre. 
Yeah, it's a lot of people. It's a lot of violence. And Plutarch's particularly interested in the fact that it's it's very unmilitaristic. Mm. There's no swords. He wants to point that out. I mean, it can't be dressed up as any kind of war anyway because it's happening on the capital yeah. uh, and between Romans. But the fact that it's quite brutal and quite savage and yeah. that they're using these torn apart bits of furniture. And it's interesting that he emphasizes that this guy Lucius Rufus claims that he was the one who gave him the second blow. So he said with Publius... Everyone agrees he was the first. Yes. But then everyone else presumably is trying to claim being the second person to strike a blow on Tiberius Gracchus. He doesn't describe, he doesn't go on, or maybe he doesn't know, details of the final blow. It's like he pans out yeah. and you see the violence going on on mass and 300 dead at the end of it. Mm. So somewhere, you know, amongst all of that, Tiberius Gracchus has been killed. He's been clubbed to death. And this is not noble at all. This is not like dying on a battlefield. This is really quite brutal and out of control. No battle lines have been drawn up. No troops are in formation. Mm. They're all just going for it. This is chaos. Yeah, yeah. When you hear about the death of Tiberius Gracchus, I didn't associate it with collateral damage so much. Mm. Just that fact makes it even more significant, really. Yeah, yeah. We do think of him being assassinated and don't necessarily think of all those just, around him. You just think him, chair leg, done, mm-hmm. you know? This is just wholesale a big slaughter. Plutarch, like a lot of other people, sees this as the first step. The next thing he says is the first outbreak of civil strife in Rome. Mm. So that already tells you, if you didn't know, there are going to be more. But that this is a precedent, this killing of a tribune of the people or someone's re-standing as tribune of the people while he's on the Capitol Hill, sacred to Jupiter. Yeah. It's really quite horrific. So what was Plutarch's reading of this event then? Was it a significant event and how was it significant? It's really significant because it's the first strife, the first aggro happening within Rome between Roman citizens, Mm. he says, since the expulsion of the kings, which is sort of semi-mythical history from the 6th century BCE. So we're talking four centuries before. We've had four centuries of relative civil peace where any fighting that's happening is conquest outwards and now it's turning back inwards. Mm. The implication is this is the beginning of more of this. So in the immediate aftermath, it seems that there was still a lot of resentment towards Tiberius Gracchus, despite the fact that the Senate clearly won this argument? Yeah, so Gaius wants to bury his brother to get hold of the body and treat it with the appropriate respect, which is really important for Romans. Mm. I mean, it is in many cultures. The Senate refuses permission for this, and they have the body of Tiberius and everybody else who's been killed taken up and thrown into the Tiber, which is the punishment for criminals. Right? Mm. That's what you do with the bodies of criminals. They're ladling it on even after they've killed him. They won't allow any honours to be paid to the body. They they don't care about the family. They don't care about giving them, allowing them to grieve properly. Yeah, It's kind of disgraceful. Those who haven't been killed as well. So supporters of yeah. Tiberius Gracchus who... Continue to suffer, all right? They get arrested, they get executed without trial. And somebody called Diophanes, the rhetorician, so an educated man, is one of those mm. who is executed. And nasty punishments as well. Listen to this one. A certain Gaius Vilius was shut up in a vessel with vipers and others poisoned snakes and put to death in this way. Mm. That just seems really unnecessary. And we get a send-off for our good old friend Blossius of Cumae. 
who philosophizes his way out of there. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and I think this is the important thing to take away from this. He kind of gets away with having encouraged Tiberius to go on. He says he'd acted in every instance on Tiberius's orders. All right, so I was only acting under orders, he says. <laughs> no, um, they, they ask him, what then if Tiberius had ordered thee to set fire to the capital? i.e. if Tiberius told you to jump off a bridge, would you do yeah, it? It's pretty much that narrative, isn't it? <laughs> and he and goes, well, since it's Tiberius asking, yes, I probably would. <laughs> well, but first he says Tiberius would never have asked something like that. Of course. So you're dealing with an alternate reality that couldn't possibly have happened. Mm. But when the same question was put to him time after time by his interrogators... He answered, well, if he'd given me such an order, it would have been right for me to carry it out. And then he uh, dissolved into a waft of philosophizing smoke and went out of there. Yeah, well, he goes off to Asia. Same difference. Yeah. <laughs> so the law stays in place. Yeah, they allow the distribution of public land to proceed. You could see this as a compromised position. Nobody gets prosecuted for killing Tiberius because they've got rid of the ringleader they can sort of swallow the bitter pill of putting up with what he'd put in place. Because at least it's not going to go further. There's nobody there to be a ringleader and a king now, mm. in their view. So what is the significance of this event then? And does Tiberius Gracchus become a martyr? I'd say the significance is that this shows that the people can back someone who can be a danger to the Senate. And he's a martyr to that cause, mm. in a way. I'd also say that the Senate doesn't read this very well. They think getting rid of one man, and they keep thinking this, will <laughs> sort it all out. Yeah. I but mean, there's you, always somebody else, isn't there? There's yeah. going to be somebody else quite soon, Tiberius's brother. I mean, the ghost of Julius Caesar kind of hangs over yeah. this entire event, and it didn't work no, in the long run. There are still calls for more reform from the people. Hmm. And I think the Senate think that if they just leave them with this bit of land reform, that should be enough. But, I mean, it depends what point of view you take, doesn't it? Certainly Cassius Dio, who we haven't mentioned much today, he thinks that Tiberius is a troublemaker. Yeah, I got that impression from reading his uh, very brief account of it, that Tiberius Gracchus was a bit fame-hungry and was yeah. in this for his own benefit. That's clearly the other side of it, and I think it's why Plutarch is so very careful to say that Tiberius isn't showy. And to me, he depicts him as a true believer, as it were as somebody mm. who really thinks that this is a reform that needs to be done. Mm. There was obviously another strand which comes out in the later work of Dio Cassius that if only we hadn't had this firebrand, then things could have been done more peaceably or, you know, the people wouldn't have been stirred up. So there's that side to the argument mm. for the Romans as well. You know, Dio says that actually the gods clearly weren't happy. He says there was a meteor shower in response to the death the meaning of the massive stones that poured down from heaven, falling upon some of the temples and killing men, and the tears of Apollo, he calls it, for the god had wept for three days. It's very dramatic from Cassius Dio there. But I suppose that even if this is the case, even if Tiberius Gracchus was somebody who needed to be dealt with, when the dust settles in the capital the next day, I mean, everyone's got to be taken a rather stern look at themselves and going, right, is this what our republic has come to? I think that there is a lot of moralizing going on. I'm not sure it's directed in the way you might expect. Mm. Uh, certainly what happens down in the first century is there's a kind of, oh, you know, the civil discord. It must be because we're acting in a bad way. Not enough of the aristocracy are getting married and having legitimate children or we're not honoring the gods enough. 
And I would say, actually, one of the one of the legacies of this is that the Senate thinks they can get away with it. Not only do they think stubbing out one person will solve it, but they think when they stub out that one person, there's no comeuppance. Yeah, yeah. And that's why way down the track, when Brutus and Cassius and others murder Caesar, they're quite surprised when the people turn on them and, you know, Caesar's heir raises an army and goes to get them. Mm. The precedent is that once these people are murdered, there might be a bit of disturbance, there might be a bit of residual bad feeling, but on the whole, things go back to normal. That's Associate Professor Rhiannon Evans, Senior Lecturer in Classics and Ancient History at La Trobe University, and you are listening to Emperors of Rome. If you like this podcast, you can subscribe to it in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you may cast your pod. Reviews, as always, are very appreciated. You can like the Emperors of Rome on Facebook. You can follow both myself and Rhiannon on Twitter. Rhiannon is at Dr. Rhiannon Evans. I am at Nightlight Guy, and the podcast is at Rome Podcast. In the next episode of Emperors of Rome, Gaius Gracchus gets in a fracas. But until then, I'm Matt Smith. You've been fantastic, and thanks for listening. <laughs>